Our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you have submitted, so we won't be in one passage, we'll be jumping around, so take your Bible with me and prepare to turn to a lot of different passages, uh, a number of different passages uh, as we answer the questions, excellent questions once again this month that were turned in, and a lot of them, so uh, hopefully I can at least, though not give a lot of detail, do justice somewhat to the questions that you asked and uh, at least give you some information to chew on. So let's turn to Acts 17 is where the first question comes from. Uh, Acts chapter 17. This is in Paul's famous uh, sermon on Athens, Mars Hill. I remember years ago preaching through this passage and I titled it Paul in the USA because if there's any passage that really uh, parallels the culture of the United States, it would have been ancient Athens and the philosophers and the views of life, etc. But specifically, the question is right near the end of Paul's uh, sermon in chapter 17, verse 30, where Paul says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And the question is this, Paul says these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commends all men everywhere to repent. I was wondering what the times of ignorance meant. Very good question. Uh, it's obvious Paul is saying here God overlooked human ignorance. And if, you, if we had had time to back up and read uh, to get a running start, specifically he's talking about in the context of idol making. Uh, so God overlooked this human ignorance revealed in idol making. And basically what Paul is saying here is the same thing he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, where he says in his forbearance, as Paul's describing the plan of salvation, in his forbearance, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, God held back his wrath. He held back what he could have done by executing judgment because he was patient. But now he's commanding all men everywhere to repent. He is not implying that people who were in this time of ignorance, in the, we might say the Old Testament era, were innocent because we know even from, from Romans chapter 1 that people are without excuse because of natural revelation. So he's not implying that they were innocent, but he is saying obviously that there is a different accountability now that the gospel has come. Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. This message is being proclaimed far and wide, and that brings with it a greater accountability. So God was patient. God was forbearing. He didn't, he let the sins, left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, but now he's commanding every man to repent because with a higher uh, form of revelation as revealed in the gospel, there is a higher form of accountability. So uh, he's just, I think, saying the same thing he says elsewhere. This is another uh, passage you may want to jot down. We don't have time to turn to it. It would be Acts fourteen sixteen, where it says this, in the past, he let all nations go their way. Similar type of thought there. God just let things go. It didn't mean he didn't care. It didn't mean that they weren't responsible. But God in his patience let things unfold till the time of his son and the death of his son, the resurrection, and now there is more of an urgency to respond because God is calling all men to repent, and with that message comes a greater accountability. All right, the next question says this, uh, how can we discern between miracles, this is coming off this morning's message, how can we discern from miracles that are from God and miracles that are not from God? 
It's a really good question because, as we saw this morning, the same terms are used to describe the miracles of the future Antichrist, uh, the false prophet, as, as the same terms that were used to describe the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of the apostles. And so, since that's the case, since they can be largely the same, you remember the story of Moses and uh, calling on Pharaoh to let my people go, and every time he did a miracle... You know, the, the, the Egyptian magicians would do basically the same kind of miracle until eventually, you know, his snake, you know, gobbled up the other one or whatever. But, but they were matching miracle for miracle. So since they are largely the same, how can we know? Well, it has to then come back to the message that is being promoted or reinforced. So you still have to come back to deciphering or discerning what the messenger is saying Uh, Because God obviously would not give a sign, and that is the term that's used of miracles often, signs. God would not give a sign to approve of aberrant theology. For example, let's just take a a very uh, well-known case. Most in here have heard of, maybe even seen on TV, Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn claims to perform miracles. I don't know if he ever really does anything that's truly miraculous or if it's gimmicks, tricks, or whatever. But let's just say for the sake of discussion, he performs a miracle. Now, how do we know if that's from God or not from God? Well, it's easy to know. Because if he performs a miracle and says, this is support, I am God's messenger, and therefore you need to be slain in the spirit, you need to bark like a dog, you need to do all these things that are in that movement, you know what? You, you don't have any doubt in your mind that that is not from God. Because there's nothing in the Bible about being slain in the Spirit. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible about barking like a dog, all of the things that came out of the supposed Toronto blessing, etc. So even though it may be an actual miracle, the way you decipher is it one from God or not is what message is it reinforcing? And if it's reinforcing an aberrant theology, an erroneous message like that, doesn't matter if it's miraculous, it is not from God. And this is basically what John says in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, test the spirits. And what does he say? How does he say to test them? See who does the greatest miracles? No. He goes on to talk about doctrine. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. So again, it always, always, always comes back to the message of the messenger, not his actions, because Satan can duplicate miracles. It always comes back to the message, the truthfulness, the accuracy. How does it line up with Scripture? Is it accurate theologically? Is it accurate doctrinally? That is always still the foundation. All right, the next question says this. um, Why? I'm so glad someone asked this question because I've been wanting to comment on it for weeks as we've been going through the Olivet Discourse and bouncing over to the book of Revelation. Uh, Why does the Bible use the phrase of, of Jesus in relation to Jesus coming back, that he will rule with a rod of iron. says that several times. Why rule with a rod of iron? Well, here's the answer. Because he is going to establish an earthly kingdom that will eventually involve unbelievers. If you read the story as it unfolds in Revelation, eventually there will be so many unbelievers that when Satan is released from his thousand years in the pit, he will organize revolt, and they will be as the number of the sand of the sea. That's how many unbelievers will be on planet Earth in the kingdom. But Jesus will not tolerate overt rebellion. He's ruling with a rod of iron, so everyone will conform. If they don't conform, the indication or the hint at the end of Isaiah is that they will be executed. They will die. Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. So in a sense, even that phrase is sort of a 
don't know how to say this. It's sort of a uh, partial piece of evidence for an actual millennial kingdom. Because if Jesus comes back and we all go to heaven and there is no kingdom where there are unbelievers involved, Jesus doesn't have to rule in heaven with a rod of iron. That's silly. Don't, you don't need to rule there with a rod of iron, with everybody with glorified bodies. But if he's establishing an actual kingdom in which there will be unbelievers, then he will rule with a rod of iron. So that is why that phrase is used in, in connection with his second coming. All right, next question is Matthew chapter 12. This is the uh, famous passage of the unpardonable sin committed by the religious leaders of the first century where they, knowing it wasn't true, said that Jesus was doing his miracles by the power of Satan, casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus goes on to tell them that it's ridiculous that they would say such a thing. And here's the question. Pastor Brian, in Matthew 12, Jesus says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself uh, can't, uh, uh, cannot stand. And this is, again, in relation to Jesus saying, if I will just pick it up, verse 25, but Jesus know, knew their thoughts and said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And so here's the question. If this is the case, in Matthew 7, Jesus tells of unsaved people, this is Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus tells of unsaved people who claim to have cast out demons in his name. You remember that? Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. So this person is saying, hold it. Jesus implies here that no one who is not a true believer or on God's side, however you want to say it, would cast out a demon. But in Matthew 7, you have a group of people who are sent away from the Lord, clearly don't belong to the Lord, and claim to have cast out demons. Also, in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the Antichrist has the ability to do great works. Please help me reconcile unsaved people doing what Jesus seems to imply they cannot. It's a very good question. Um, and here, I think, is the key. It's not merely, Jesus is not saying here in this passage that no, uh, how, how would I say this? Uh, Jesus is not saying that it is impossible for Satan to enable someone to cast out a demon to confuse the issue in people's minds. What he is saying, and, and the important thing to understand here, is that Jesus was going around casting out demons, but here's the key. He was casting out demons, and he was always sending them to the pit or the abyss. It's not that he was merely casting out demons, but he would cast them out and send them to the abyss where they would be confined. And in fact, that is the reason why on one occasion, you remember the one story where he cast the demons into the herd of swine to show that they had left the person and where they went. And then when the swine ran down the hill into the lake, then they went to the abyss. So Jesus, every time he cast out a demon, he sent that, sent that demon or those demons to the abyss. That's not the same as someone maybe being empowered by Satan or just 
wouldn't even have to be satanically empowered. It just could be a deception of Satan. Satan allowing someone to supposedly cast out a demon of someone to confuse people to think this person is from God. But, but Satan would never cast out a demon and send that demon to the abyss, the pit. So it's, in a sense, it's comparing apples and oranges. You're not comparing two equal things. Jesus' ministry of casting out demons was to send them to the pit, to the abyss. And he is saying here, how can you say that I'm doing this by Satan? If Satan were doing this, there's no way he would have me casting out demons, sending them to the abyss. He doesn't deny that people could be used by Satan to confuse other people by claiming to cast out demons or even having a demon leave and just go somewhere else and maybe even come back. So there's no prohibition against that in what Jesus says here, or no uh, inherent contradiction in what he says here. All right, next question. Uh, let's see, what is, where is it? Next question is, uh, because of the description of the Antichrist, or because of the description of the Antichrist is so vivid in the Bible, do you think that there will be people, maybe even Christians or people who claim to be Christians, who will try to kill the Antichrist before he can do much damage? Or will the identity of the Antichrist not be known until it is too late? Well, when will the identity be known? The identity of the Antichrist will be known when he signs a seven-year covenant with Israel. Anyone who knows Daniel 9 and believes Daniel 9, takes Daniel 9 literally, will know when someone signs a seven-year treaty with Israel, that's the guy. But in answer to your question, I don't know if anyone will do that or not or attempt to do that, but it is interesting that in Revelation 13, verse 12, or verse 12, and then other times in Revelation, it mentions a deadly wound that was healed that the Antichrist has. And all the world marvels because his deadly wound was healed. And I said, I don't know, in one of the sermons recently, it's possible that that is referring to the fact that the Antichrist could be killed or nearly killed and come back to life and all the world will marvel then and give their allegiance to the beast. So, you know, your scenario is not uh, unthinkable. That someone would kill or attempt to kill the Antichrist, thinking I've got to kill this guy before he ruins the world, and then he comes back to life. Now, we don't have anything in Scripture that would definitively say that, but it's certainly a possible scenario based on Revelation 13. All right, next question says this, weird question that likely does not have an answer. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? And I think the answer to that is no, they did not, because they were a direct special creation from God. And if you know what a belly button is for, it's so that you, when you're in the mother's womb, that's how you have the source of life, you know, throwing through, uh, flowing through the umbilical cord. So they didn't need any of that. They were direct special creation from God. And all of us since are not that. Now we are created by God, but we are not a direct special creation from God in that sense. God creates through the means of procreation. So I know you say it's a weird question. It is kind of silly and we, we don't know definitively, but if we understand what a belly button is and what God did with Adam and Eve, it's pretty safe to say they probably didn't have, have uh, belly buttons. All right, next question. Genesis chapter 9, all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. It says this, uh, the question is on Genesis 9, 5. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man, too. I will demand an accounting for the life 
of his fellow man. And here's the question based on Genesis 9-5. Does this mean that God will hold an animal accountable for killing a man? And if so, how? That is exactly what it means because the next verse applies that then to man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So yes, you're reading it right. What it's saying is, if an animal kills a man, he's accountable for killing that man. And how is he accountable? He's to be ki- it is to be killed. The beast is to be killed. And then that same principle is applied in verse 6 to fellow man. So yes, you're reading it right. And it's basically the institution uh, of the death penalty on both an animal level and on a human level. That's what God is saying there. Our next question says this. Uh, this is from a youngster. A little gal wrote this one and to me this morning. She said, Pastor Brian, what does amen mean? Why do we say it? Well, the word amen, both in Hebrew and Greek, is a very broad term. It, it could be translated yes. Uh, it could be translated truly. It could be translated may it be so, let it be, verily. It's, a, it's a, an, a, an affirming word, a yes word. So why do we say it? Well, the, one of the reasons why we say it is, for example, let's say you're in with another group of Christians and someone is praying and you wholeheartedly agree with their prayer and when do they come to the end of it? You join with them and you say amen. That's your way of saying, yes, Lord, I'm praying that too. Yes, Lord, may it be. Let it be so. I, I join my heart in with that. I join my request in with that. So um, it's the same word, by the way, that's translated in the older translations, verily, verily, when Jesus said verily, verily, most of our modern translations, truly, truly, I say to you, it's amen is, is the word. So in both Hebrew and Greek, it's a, it's a term of affirmation, a positive term, uh, an agreeing term, and we say it because uh, when something is stated that we really agree with, that's a way we can say, I totally agree with that without saying, I totally agree with that. You can say it in one word, amen, I totally agree with that. All right, next question says this. Um, Please explain the difference between Hades and the lake of fire. Uh, Is this concept where the Catholic Church gets their concept of purgatory? Well, first let me explain the difference. It is this. When people die today in unbelief, unbelievers die today. Now, I know that we say this sometimes. We will say, well, if you die without Christ, you're going to hell. And we all know what we mean by that. It's not bad to say that in the sense of not some bad theology, but it's not technically accurate. Because if an unbeliever dies today, he or she does not go to hell right now. He or she goes to Hades. Hades, according to Luke 16, is a place of judgment. It's a place of torment. It's a place of fire. But it is the place where unbelievers go without a body. It's a place where they go without the body. Without the body, Hell or Gehenna or the lake of fire is where people will eventually end up after they have been raised from the dead, their bodies have been raised from the dead, reunited with their soul, spirit, the inner man. They stand at the great white throne judgment of God and then they are cast into hell. Now the exception of that, of course, as we've seen the last two weeks, is the beast and the false prophet. When Jesus comes back, they will be consigned directly to hell. Alive, They will be cast alive into the lake of fire. But technically speaking, when an unbeliever dies today, he, doesn't, he goes to Hades and he will be in Hades until his body or her body is raised, reunited, and stands at the great white throne and then is consigned to the eternal lake of fire or hell. 
Now, you ask, secondly, is this concept where the Catholics get their, or is this concept where the Catholic Church gets their concept purgatory? I'm not sure it is because I know the doctrine of purgatory is also uh, supported in some of their other writings. So I'm not, I'm not sure it'd be accurate to say this is where they get it from, but it is often confused by this. In other words, because there's this reading in the Bible and they understand there's some distinction between Hades and hell, it's used to sort of mix the two. Uh, but they aren't the same because um, purgatory is a place that, according to Catholic theology, uh, people can go and get out of eventually if you do your time. But according to Scripture, if you go to Hades, you don't get out of there ever and go to heaven. You just get out of there to get your new body to be consigned to hell. So it's, it's really not the same. All right, next question says this. Since we already know the length of days three and a half years, in other words, the, 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 the last half of the tribulation period, to what does the, the phrase, what does the phrase God shortening the days refer to? In other words, Jesus said, you know, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So what is uh, that referring to? I think it's just referring to the fact that God has, is saying there that it is not going to go on indefinitely. It will not be unending, but it has been shortened from the time that Satan and the Antichrist would like it to be. They would like enough time to annihilate the Jewish people, kill all believers. They would like it to be much longer, but God has shortened the days and determined it's not going to be longer. It's going to be restricted to that the, the, the term that's used, or the terms used throughout Revelation. 42 months, 1260 days, time times, half a time, three and a half years. So it's shortened to only be that length of time because if God allowed it to be longer, it would result in, in maybe the annihilation of the Jewish people. All right, next question says this. Why do you always refer to 70 AD as a defense against full preterism as if that were the only option? What happened in A.D. 70? Is it not true that many of God's people found solace in these words in 70 A.D. as they fled to the hills? Is it not true that many false messiahs rose up between Mark and 70 A.D. and promised they could def- uh, de- uh, defeat Rome? They led, um, they led many astray, and they all met destruction. So this person is basically taking issue with my view of the Olivet Discourse saying, well, you know, it, the, no, those words could apply to A.D. 70, et cetera, et cetera. So let me, there's several questions here, so let me go back and, and uh, answer them. What happened in A.D. 70? That's a good starting point. Here's what happened in A.D. 70. The Roman army came to Jerusalem. The Roman army destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and in the war with Rome, we know from history, from Josephus, 1.1 million Jews lost their lives. 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered. To me, that doesn't sound like taking Mark and they flee to the hills and they were safe. And in fact, the only group that we know about from history that fled was the group that went to Masada. And about 1,000 went to Masada and they all eventually lost their lives. So if you're trying to say, oh, no, you're taking the, the, the Olivet Discourse wrong. These words were for A.D. 70, or at least could apply to there, because many of God's people found solace in these words, and they fled to the hills. Well, all I can go by is what, what history records. History records 1.1 million Jews losing their lives and another 1,000 at Masada. In addition, there are three historians, and I can give you their names if you want them afterwards, three historians that tell us, interestingly, that the Jewish believers who received the letter called Hebrews in 
our Bible, which basically told them to break with Judaism and just stay true to Jesus, did that. And when they could see that the war with Rome was about to break out, they left Jerusalem and they said, we don't have any uh, tie to Judaism. So they left, went across the Jordan River to the east side and waited out the war. And all three historians tell us not one of those Jews lost their lives in the Jewish war with the Romans because they basically repudiated Judaism and said, we're not, we're not in that system. We belong to Jesus. So again, that doesn't fit Romans, I mean, uh, uh, Mark 13. They didn't flee into the hills. They just went across the, the Jordan and waited out. They didn't see an abomination of desolation and flee. So if you can show me historical fact, proof that that was the case, then maybe you have you know, an, an argument here, but uh, you, you can't say, uh, is it not true that many of God's people found solace in these words in 70 AD? I, show me some proof. Show me some evidence from history. I don't know that any did. I do know what history says. I know what the facts are. Furthermore, I would say this, even if they did, even if they found solace in those words, and if that's not what Jesus is saying, it doesn't change the meaning of what Jesus is saying. Let me illustrate what I'm, my point. Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. I've heard lots of Christian couples use that at their wedding. Where two or three are gathered together, I am in the midst. has nothing to do with the wedding. I've heard Christians use that at prayer meeting. Where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. I've heard Christians use it at small group Bible study. has nothing to do with those things. So the fact that Christians have found solace, that they come to a prayer meeting and only two are there, and so they quote Matthew 18, 20, the fact that they say, well, there's only two of us here, but Matthew 18, 20 says where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. The fact that they use it wrongly, does that make it right? No, it's not what the verse is talking about. And another illustration, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, how many Christians have taken that verse to say, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking. If you open the door of your heart, that's not what that verse is talking about. So just because people use it that way doesn't mean that's what it means. So even if you say, well, I, I believe that some, some of God's people found solace in the, in the words in A.D. 70, well, even if they did, if that's not what Jesus was saying, it doesn't matter because our job as interpreters is to find out what Jesus meant by what he said, not how people used it for their own comfort, maybe wrongly. So again, I come back to what I've been saying for the last month and on the Olivet Discourse. It is futuristic. It is about the Jews at the time of the end, at the Great Tribulation, abomination of desolation. It's not fulfilled in A.D. 70. Could there be any application? Maybe, but you need to show me some facts from history. Because I know the facts of history say a lot of Jews were slaughtered and Christian Jews weren't because they just left because they had no tie to Judaism. Those are the facts. So again, uh, the objections that you're making toward a futuristic view of the Olivet Discourse, you've got to convince me of some facts if you want me to change my view. All right, next uh, question says this. It's been a long time since I've heard this question uh, because of all English translations, more modern ones. Please explain the phrase, sons of Belial. Who was Belial? You remember that phrase? Some of you, some of you young people are going, I don't, I've never even heard of that phrase. That's because this is a phrase that goes back to the, basically the King James Version. In fact, on my computer this afternoon, I typed in Sons of Belial on a couple of different translations, and they say the phrase doesn't appear. Because most of our modern English translations translate it because this, this way, it was an expression that meant worthless men, no good men, 
uh, perverted men. That's the way it's translated in some translations. Uh, so it's not referring to a person, Belial. It's just an expression that meant worthless people, perverted people. Now, some say, well, where did the term Belial come from? And there are, there are a number of possible suggestions. Uh, some trace it back to Baal, Baal, uh, the false god that was so prominent in, in, in much of Israel's history. It's possible the term came from there, but really we don't know for sure. But rather than concentrating on who was Belial, understand the phrase was just used as a synonym for perverted men, no good men, worthless men. That's the way it's translated in almost all of our English translations. Our next question says this, um, as we release from service, uh, a very common charge is often go and be salt and light. Uh, The salt brings to mind the salt covenant mentioned in the Old Testament. Can you please define or explain this particular covenant? Well, I'll mention the salt covenant, but I'm not convinced that the salt and light expression that Jesus used in Matthew 5 comes from there. I don't think it's the same thing. Uh, The salt covenant was one of the covenants in the Old Testament where you would mix salt, you would do something with salt for the obvious reason, once you mix something with salt, for example, not that this was the case, but let's just, as an example, if you mix, you pour sugar and salt together, guess what? You can never separate them. There's no way you can pull every grain out and figure out which one's salt, which one's sugar. Once you do that, it's sort of an unbreakable mixture. And so that's why that was sometimes used as a picture of a covenant. A salt covenant was a covenant that was sort of permanent. You can't, you're not going to undo it. It's a salt covenant. But I don't think that's what Jesus at all was referring to in Matthew 5, where he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I think rather in the first century when Jesus spoke those words, salt was so very common. In fact, I just thought of this. A family here in our church, and I see them here tonight, uh, a couple years ago gave me, I didn't even know that anything such, any such thing existed, an entire book that's about 300 and some pages on salt. And how prominent salt has been in history and, and, and how, you know, just how it's been used and how crucial it is. So even in the first century, salt was key for so many things. It was obviously a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration. So the way you would keep meat is salt it. Uh, it was also used to season things. And that's why Jesus says, if the salt has lost its flavor, what, wherewith will it be salted? So it was used in a variety of ways, and I think that's more what Jesus is referring to when he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are a preserving influence in your circle, because if not for believers, I mean, the world's bad enough, but if not for believers, it would be even way worse. We, we are a preserving influence. Not only that, we should add, for lack of a better way to say it, spice to life. We should create a thirst in other people as they see our lives, that they would be thirsty for Christ and what we have. So all of those pictures, I think, are what, uh, those pictures are what Jesus had in mind when he said, you are the salt of the earth. I don't think you need to tie that phrase back to the salt covenants in the Old Testament. All right, next question. This comes out of John 4. You don't really need to turn to it because you're all familiar with it, I'm sure. But it says, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? You remember Jesus had this conversation with the woman at the well. She said, well, we Samaritans, we worship here. They were standing right below Mount Gerizim, by the way, to have this conversation. There was a temple up on Mount Gerizim. We worship here on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews, you worship down in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, listen, the day is coming where it won't matter if you worship here or there because... 
God is looking for those to worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Well, it is sort of, sort of the two sides of the road, if you will. Uh, to worship in spirit means you worship with fervency, with genuineness. In other words, it's the opposite of just going through the motions and going through dead ritualism. Right? And in other words, so much of worship today, you've all seen it. Maybe you've done it. You've been in places or, or whatever. You've been in churches where, okay, now we're going to all say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will. You know, people are just reciting something mindlessly. Hail Mary, full of grace, Mother of God. You know, you know so it's just this ritual. That's, that's not worshiping in spirit. That's just going through some ritual, some mechanical a uh, uh, perfunctory type of thing. So God, God doesn't want that kind of worship. He doesn't want us to come here and sing songs and you're thinking about, well, this week I need to get this done. I need to do that and whatever, you know. People are praying and think, man, yesterday was, I, I really got a lot done around the house, you know. No, you, you worship with your spirit. You're, you're engaged. But then, so that we don't go too far the other way, so it means not mindlessly, but with emotion, but also in truth, because there's a lot of worship that has a lot of emotion, but not much truth. It's just wild frenzy. So th- there's a ditch on both sides of the road, and God's, God, Jesus said, wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit, that is with fervency, with emotion, engaged, but not, not a wild uh, display of emotion that is not tempered by truth. So both in spirit and in truth is the way God wants to be worshiped. All right, next question says this. uh, How should Christians handle the death penalty, especially in light of the current events with Planned Parenthood and abortion? Further, can someone say, I am pro-life when it comes to abortion, but not when it comes to capital punishment? Well, let me start there. I would say this, that whatever your view, and I'm not being critical of this, I'm just trying to say it, uh, that's a very, that's not a good way to, it's a very poor way to phrase it. You never would want to say, I'm pro-life when it comes to abortion, but not when it comes to capital punishment. Because you are stating in such a way that it implies automatically that if you believe in capital punishment, you're not pro-life. And that's not necessarily true. Now, you understand that Christians are divided on capital punishment. So I'm not going to say this is the view you ought to hold. But, but simply to say this, that this is not the way to say it because you can be pro-life when it comes to abortion and pro-life when it comes to capital punishment. In fact, you're so pro-life that you go back to Genesis 6 and Romans 13 and say, you know what, I'm so pro-life that if someone kills another man, that person is to be executed. So that's not anti-pro-life. So don't put these as sort of diametrically uh, in opposition. They're not necessarily. So in answer to your question, certainly there's no doubt whatsoever, there's no debate on this one, or there shouldn't be, that Christians should be pro-life when it comes to abortion. When a child is conceived in the womb, that is a child. Whether it's one minute old, one day old, one month old, or whatever, and there's no justification, excuse, rationalization to end, to end the life of the child. None. And so that, that should just go w- without any debate. Now, like I said, Christians wrestle through the capital punishment thing. Some Christians believe that according to Romans 13, it's still in force. Others would say, no, it was part of the Old Testament law, not necessarily the New Testament. And you can wrestle through that uh, and, and decide where you land. But wherever you land, don't say it this way. Don't say I'm pro-life when it comes to abortion, but not when it comes to capital punishment. 
you, you just need to spell out where you, you could say, I'm pro-life when it comes to abortion. I don't believe, however, in capital punishment. Or you can say, I'm pro-life when it comes to abortion, and I am pro-life when it comes to capital punishment, so pro-life that if someone murders another person, that person's life should be taken. But that's still a pro-life position. So that's what you need to wrestle through. All right, question, next question says, It is clear from Job that Satan and his angels still have access to heaven until they are cast out in Revelation 12. And that's true. Does Scripture tell us anything about why God still allows that? Nothing I know of. What we are told in Revelation 12 is what Satan does, not necessarily why God allows it, but he accu- he's called the accuser of the brethren and accuses us before the throne. So that's what he does. I don't know if you could say that's why he is allowed to be there. That's certainly what he does. So do we know anything about the extent or nature of their access? No. I don't know of anything. We don't know, you know, can they come and go at will? Uh, did Job 1, did Satan occur, or, or did Satan come there because he was, had to come there to give an account with all the B'nai Elohim, all the sons of God, all the spirit beings, or did he just show up? We're not, we don't, we're not really told. So uh, your questions are, I understand you're wrestling with them, but I don't know of anything in Scripture that give a lot of, of info on that. Our next question is James 1, all the way over near the end of the New Testament, James chapter 1. says this, uh, James 1.15 says, Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. And the question is this, could you please explain the phrase brings forth death in James 1.15? How does this phrase apply to the believer who has new life? He says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. And so seems to be uh, referring to or speaking to Christians. Very good question. I think a couple comments on this. One is, is this. Death in the Bible, the, the most fundamental or basic idea of death is separation. God said, in the day, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat it, you will surely die. Well, obviously Adam and Eve didn't keel over. But they died. Why? Because they were immediately separated from God. Physical death is separation of the inner man from the body. Death is separation. So it's possible that James is saying this. Listen, you give in to sin, you separate yourself in your relationship to God, which would tie in with 1 John 1, 9. You need to confess your sin to be restored because now you're separated. Or the other possibility, or maybe it's not an either or, the other possibility that James has in mind is that we know from several passages of the New Testament that it was not an uncommon occurrence for believers to sin in the first century and end up dead. Ananias and Sapphira, John refers to it in 1 John. Uh, Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 11. So it's possible he's saying, listen, you give in to sin, you are putting yourself in the place that maybe God's chastisement will be death, physical death. So it's either or or maybe both. He's maybe warning you're going to be separated in your walk with the Lord uh, if you give in to sin, and maybe you're putting yourself in jeopardy of actual death. All right, next question. Uh, I think this one was somewhat answered, but I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, no one is hell right now. You said no one is in hell right now from last week. Is anyone in heaven? Well, no one is in hell right now. That's right. Uh, people are in Hades. Uh, is anyone in heaven? Absolutely. 
Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body is present with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So the minute we leave this earth, the minute we die, we go to heaven, paradise, the Lord's presence, all those terms referring to the same thing. So yes, there are people in heaven today. All right, next question says this. Is there a difference between cherubim and seraphim? Yes, but I'll keep reading. The Ark of the Covenant pictured cherubim surrounding God's throne in Exodus 25, but Isaiah saw seraphim around God's throne in Isaiah 6. Yet again, Ezekiel calls them cherubim, Ezekiel 1 and 10. Uh, John just calls them living creatures in Revelation 4. Are these terms all describing the same thing? What nuances does each emphasize? Well, two answers to this question. I am convinced that there are a number of different classes of angels, not only cherubim, seraphim, living creatures, but also thrones, dominions, powers, principalities, etc. When Paul uses those terms in both Ephesians and Colossians, it is like 99% certain he's referring to spirit beings. When, when you read those lists of of uh, thrones, dominions, powers. Now, they're all, all translated differently according to your English translation. But there are all sorts of classes of angels. Cherubim being one, seraphim being one, living creatures. But there is a lot of overlap because they're all angels. And that's what makes it difficult. So can I answer your question and give you the nuance? What's the difference between a throne and a principality and a cherubim? I can't. I can't because I don't know that Scripture gives us enough evidence other than to say they are distinct classes with some distinct roles, but overlapping roles because the term angel is used of all of them, which means messenger. They are God's messengers. So uh, there is also an archangel, Michael. There is uh, Gabriel, the messenger angel. So angels are not just sort of, you know, cookie cutter. Make one angel and then mass produce them all and they all look the same. No, they're different, unique creations of God. But I can't give you all the nuances. All right, next question says this. Uh, and we won't turn to it just for the sake of time. How does Deuteronomy 28, and if you're familiar with it, Moses lists, you know, if you obey God, if you, if you follow God, he'll bless you and he'll bless your crops. And, and then if you don't follow God, you're going to be cursed. And, you know, there's just this long list of blessings and cursings. So how does Deuteronomy 28, the curse of disobedience, tie in with what you have been teaching us in Mark 13? I believe it does tie in because God says in that passage that this is going to be your future history, Israel. As long as you are obedient to me, as long as you follow me, I'm going to bless you. But when you don't, you're going to have problems. And you're going to, you're going to experience persecution and tribulation. And in fact, uh, in Deuteronomy 4.30, now that's not Deuteronomy 28, but in Deuteronomy 4.30, uh, Moses even talks about when you face the tribulation of the latter days. So he points forward all the way to the end time tribulation. So while Deuteronomy 28 isn't specifically speaking of the end time tribulation, what we call the seven year tribulation, it is the principle throughout that chapter that God says to his people Israel, if you obey me and you submit to me, I'll bless you. And when you don't, you're going to have lots of major problems in life. And of course, that's what's part of the reason behind the tribulation is to bring Israel to repentance and to break their stubbornness. All right, final question says this, uh, and you can just jot down the passage. We don't need to turn to it, but it says, uh, it's asking about Keturah, Abraham's uh, wife after Sarah died, and then he, they had children. So it says, can you touch on Abraham, uh, Abraham's wife and family after Sarah died 
And just before Isaac is the center of attention. Now, again, the passage is Genesis 25, if you want to look at it. Uh, Why did he remarry at such an old age? And we're not told. We can only conjecture that he just didn't want to live the rest of his life alone. He married uh, a gal named Keturah. Uh, Was his wife Jewish? Not really stated. We're not told. Uh, What is known about her and the children? Only what's listed there. Uh, the, scripture, the scriptures go silent about Abraham until the New Testament, and that's right. So why is that passage put in there? This is what I got to think about when I read this question. Because, you know, these are good questions. Like, why put that in there, that Abraham got married again and had some children? Because then it just drops that and goes on to talk about Isaac. And I think that really is the key. I think the answer is this. Why is that in there? It's to show that Abraham had, you remember Abraham had a child by uh, uh, Sarah's handmaid, uh, Ishmael, and Abraham had children by Keturah. But the point, I think it's in there to show that they are not the promised line of blessing. The promised line was Isaac. And it goes through Isaac, not through Hagar's line, not through Keturah's line. It was through Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, etc. Although it is interesting to note that they became the progenitors of various Arab tribes to the east of Canaan, which... F- Ties in with what God told Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. So most of his seed did become the progenitors of, of, uh, of people groups throughout all the Middle East. But the point I think the writer of Genesis really wants us to understand is that even though Abraham had this child uh, by his wife's handmaid, and even though he had another wife after Sarah's death, and they had children, that's not the promised line. The line is through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, let's stand as we close in prayer tonight. Father, thank you for a great Lord's Day. What a a wonderful time together this morning and this evening to be able to sing such glorious songs of praise and and be able to interact with your people, to be able to look into your word and study it again. uh, Remind us, Father, remind us that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ just do not have this opportunity. They don't have this privilege. Maybe they don't have a, a, a Bible in their, their own native tongue or maybe they don't have a good translation or maybe they just don't have the time because just to survive, they have to, every minute they, they have to use to eke out a living or whatever the case, there just are many around the world who know and love Christ and they can't do what we've done this day. They can't come together for worship and, and fellowship and, and look at the word and wrestle with the word and And uh, so may we never take this for granted. Always be grateful. Always be thankful to you for the immense privileges that that are ours, remembering the words of Jesus, to whom much is given, of him much is required. May we be faithful in his name. Amen.